Well, we'll turn now to uh, the Gospel of Mark and chapter 6. Mark and chapter 6. There's one miracle that uh, our Lord performed that is recorded in all four Gospels, and it's this one, the feeding of the 5,000. And at the very least, that tells us that uh, this miracle or this sign, as the Bible often calls miracles, this sign is uh, one of great significance, and it's one worthy of of careful study. Well, we want to do that tonight. We want to look at it and study it and learn from it. And before we do that, let me set uh, the scene for you. From Matthew's account, we learn that uh, the Lord Jesus has just heard about the murder of John the Baptist. And having heard, he withdraws to a private place with his disciples. What's more, the disciples themselves, have, as we read earlier, just returned from a preaching tour, and uh, the combination of these factors leads the Lord Jesus to say to them in verse 30, come aside by yourselves to a, a deserted place and rest a while. So they sail across the Sea of Galilee, and they uh, realize that the crowds are following them, And the result is that the Lord Jesus, whilst seeking rest, he really ends up spending the rest of the day speaking to them about the kingdom of God and healing the sick. You can read about that in Luke 9.11. The area where they are is fairly deserted, and the closest town is called Bethsaida, and that's quite a distance away. And so as the day progresses and Jesus keeps teaching and the people are gathered, the the concern becomes what these people are going to eat. And then we read in verses 35 and 36 of our passage, And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy for themselves something to eat. Well, the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 plus follows this. Now, what's the purpose of a miracle? John 20, verses 30 and 31 tells us, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the purpose of miracles is not to astound people, it's not to wow people, but the purpose of miracles is to reveal something about the Lord Jesus Christ, to teach us about who the Lord Jesus is, to set before us the glory of Jesus. In John 2, when Jesus does his first miracle, that's what we are told, that this was the first of the signs that revealed and manifested the glory of Jesus. So that's the point of miracles in general, and that's the point of this miracle in particular. Well, what can we learn about the Lord Jesus from this miracle? We're going to look at three areas of study. The first is 
tested by Christ, because that's what's happening here. We are being tested by Christ. They are being tested by the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me draw your attention again to verses 35 to 37. So the situation is set before us in verses 35 and 36. And then in verse 37, Jesus answered them and said, You give them something to eat. Now John tells us that uh, Jesus was speaking specifically uh, to Philip. And perhaps that's because Philip was the one from Bethsaida. Bethsaida being the closest town and Bethsaida being where Philip was from, perhaps Jesus uh, addresses him in particular. But in reality, the Lord is not just speaking to Philip, he's speaking to all of them. And you see in verse 37, Jesus answered them, you give them something to eat. And so the word you is in the plural. And he's speaking to all of them, and he's testing all of them. The pronoun really is emphasized too. So now you've raised this matter, so you solve it. You give them something to eat. It's emphasized in the sentence, and Jesus is uh, pinning them to the wall, as it were. Now, now you do this. And so you can surmise from that that the Lord Jesus is, is actually testing them. And that's what John tells us in John chapter 6 and verses 5 and 6, where uh, we have John's version of it. We read in, uh, in that chapter, lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are, we going, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. So the Lord Jesus is testing Philip, and he's testing the disciples, and in your life and mine, he's going to test us. The word test means to try. It means to put something to a test so that we can find out its nature. You can find out what this is really all about. And so you test something so that you can discover the true nature of that something. And you see how it's going to react under a particular circumstance. The Lord Jesus is going to do that with us. For all of us who are Christians, he's going to put us to the test. He's going to put us in situations where it will appear what we're all about. What is it that really makes us tick? What is it that drives us? And the Lord Jesus will do that in your life, and he will do it in mine. Now, Jesus sets before the disciples, and he sets before Philip in particular, but all of them in, in reality. He sets before them a seemingly insurmountable problem. Feed these people. It cannot be done. They cannot do it. The Lord tests the disciples in this occasion by setting before them an insurmountable problem. He does it earlier in the Gospel of Mark as well. Just turn to Mark 4 and verse 35. This is another test. Mark 4 and verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. Well, you know the rest of the story. You know that Jesus drives them across the sea right into the teeth of a terrible and a life-threatening storm. And Jesus wants them in the midst of a terrible and a life-threatening storm. They didn't decide to go. He said, let us go to the other side. And so Jesus does this, and he does it for a purpose, and it's to test them. 
And the Lord's going to do this in their lives. He's going to do it in our lives. He's going to force us into situations where we are faced with seemingly insurmountable problems. And he will do that to show what we're like. It's the kind of thing we sang about earlier. It's the kind of thing that John Newton wrote about. If we want to pray for grace and for growth, the Lord will put us to the test so that through that we will grow. Now, that's the first point. Let me ask three questions by way of application. And the first is this. Do we see the hand of of Jesus in our testing? Do we see the hand of Jesus in the insurmountable problems that come our way? Do we see that this is from the hand of God? It's not that random things happen to us. It's not that things happen and they come by chance. It's not fate. But everything that happens to us as Christians, it's under the control of a sovereign and a gracious Lord Jesus. And when these things come, these insurmountable problems, that's how they seem to us. When they come, they seem as if we cannot possibly handle them. They come to us from the hand of the Lord Jesus. Now, how we deal with that, well, we need to look to the Lord Jesus for that as well. But the first thing to understand is that they come to us from him. And that's a great comfort to know that these things come to us from the Lord Jesus. And it's a comfort because we know the Lord Jesus loves us. Your mother and father will never give you anything that's, that's harmful. Our Heavenly Father will never give us anything that's harmful. The Lord Jesus will never bring anything into our lives that ultimately will do us harm. It will always do us good. That's what Romans 8.28 says. So do you see then the hand of Jesus in these insurmountable problems that come our way, these situations that to our minds are absolutely unworkable. They're insurmountable in terms of how we could deal with it. But do we see the hand of Jesus? <coughs> Excuse me. The second question is, do you see the wisdom of Jesus in testing? Do you see the wisdom of Jesus in testing? The fact of the matter is that here in this situation, the Lord Jesus has everything under control. It seems that everything's out of control if you're a disciple. It seems that there's no real answer. And when Jesus says, now you feed them, they throw up their hands. What do you expect us to do? This is unmanageable. And when that happens to us, when situations come our way that seem unworkable and unmanageable, well, we begin to panic. Uh, we, we simply have no answer. We throw up our hands. We feel as if we can't move forward at all. Well, that's when we need to remember that all of our circumstances are orchestrated by God. All of our situations are planned by the Lord Jesus, and they're planned by the Lord Jesus, who is all-wise. He has all wisdom. He never makes a mistake. He's never made a mistake in your life. He's never orchestrated something to happen to you that ultimately can do you harm. No, he knows exactly what's going on. He knows exactly how this is to work for your good. He knows exactly how he will be glorified in the midst of it. He knows exactly how ultimately you're going to grow completely into his image. You're going to be completely sanctified ultimately. And this is part of the means. He's wise. He is all wise, the Bible says. Everything is under control. 
See what John said. John said he was testing Philip because he knew exactly what he was going to do. I'll bring Philip to the end of himself where he has, he has no answer. And then I'll show him he's the answer. How often has that not been the case for you and I? The Lord has brought us right to the edge where we think we have nothing to do and nothing to say. We have no answer to this. And then he provides the answer. And then he comes alongside of us and he helps us. And he gives us all that we stand in need of. So do you see the wisdom of God in your testing? He will test you. And do you realize that the one who's testing you knows exactly what's going on? The wise Lord Jesus. The third question is this. Do you see the purpose of Jesus in testing? He's testing us. The testing comes from his hand. The testing comes from a wise mind. But what's the purpose in it? What's the purpose in the testing that comes our way? Well, we know the devil has a purpose. We know from uh, 2 Corinthians 12 that the devil had a purpose in the testing of Paul. And so Paul had a thorn in the side. We don't know what that was. But the devil's purpose was to bring about something sinful. The devil's purpose was to tempt Paul to sin. The devil always has a purpose in the tempting that comes into your life and mine. He wants us to despair. He wants us to be discouraged. He wants us to sin. He wants us to indulge in unbelief. He wants us to think Jesus doesn't love us. He wants us to think things are out of control. Well, the devil has his purpose, but the wonderful truth is that Jesus has an overriding purpose, as was the case with Paul. God's purpose with Paul was that through his thorn, he was going to grow. Through his thorn, he was going to be humbled. Through his thorn, he was going to see the grace of God in his life. And the Lord Jesus has a similar purpose in your life and in mine and in the trials that he brings our way. It's always, you see, for our good. You read Romans chapter 5. You can read uh, James chapter 1 and any number of other passages, and you'll find that always when God brings a trial into our lives, when Jesus tests us, it's for our good. We might not know the details, but we know it's for our good. We know it's for our sanctification. We know it's so that we might see our sin. We know it's so that we might put that sin to death. He does these things so that we might grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Just turn for a moment to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verses 8 and 9. And here, Paul is talking about a situation that he experienced and he went through. And it was the kind of trial that brought him, he thought, to the point of death. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So Jesus brought a trial into his life, brought a testing into his circumstances, and the purpose of it, now remember, Paul's looking back. Sometimes it's hard to understand the purpose in the middle of it. 
But he's looking back and he's saying there was a purpose. And the purpose was so that I might learn not to rely upon myself, but to rely upon the Lord. So, the Lord Jesus has a purpose in all of the afflictions that he brings our way. That's a wonderful thing to understand. It's a tremendously encouraging thing to grasp a hold of, to know that no matter how difficult things may be when these tests come, there's always a purpose. I may not see it, I may not see it at the time, I'll see it later on, but there's always a purpose. It's always for my good. It's always for my growth. And the Lord will, will work sometimes in ways to, to test me so as to glorify His name. Remember John chapter 9. There's a man there who's born blind, and the disciples say, well, now why is he born blind? Who sinned, him or his father and mother? And the Lord Jesus says, no, he was blind so that God, God's glory might be manifested in his life. He's born blind so that God might be glorified in him. And sometimes that's why the Lord tests us. And we might not see any other reason beyond that, except that people will see in our lives the glory of God manifested. What will they see? Well, they'll see His great strength, because you keep going. They'll see His sustaining grace, because you rise above the trials. They'll see His great love, because you're wonderfully comforted in the midst of it. And so God is being glorified as you are being tested because God is sustaining you and using you to show forth the beauty of Christ. Now, these things are tough. These things are difficult. These trials that we go through. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Just take a look at that. Just because the Lord has a purpose and just because they're wise testings and just because they're from His hand doesn't mean that it's easy. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now the word testing that you find there is the same word testing that's used of the Lord Jesus in John chapter 6. And so Jesus tests, but Peter says, it's not easy. This is very difficult. And these things are burdensome to us. They're painful. But these are the tests that God brings for our good and according to his purpose. So we're tested by the Lord Jesus. We're tested by him. Now, the second point is this. Uh, forgetful of Christ. Now, we're tested by Christ, and then we're forgetful of Christ. Now, uh, some of us love to play chess, and uh, the idea in chess is that uh, you make a move, and the opponent makes a move, and then I make a move that I hope will force him to make this move. And then I've calculated so that if I go here, he has to go there. And then if I go here, he has to go there. It's about at this point that my mind starts to get fuzzy. But grandmasters, they can work it out far beyond that point. Now, the problem with chess is that you force him to do that, and you force him to do that, and you force, if I move here, he has to do that, but then I forgot this piece over here. So all my calculations were great up until one point, and I missed it. And then you lose your queen. 
and you lose the game. The disciples made calculations, and their calculations were great. They were wonderful as far as they went, but they forgot one factor. They forgot one point, and that was the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 37 says uh, back here in our chapter, you give them something to eat. Uh, The disciples realized that there were 5,000 men, and then there were women and children as well, and their calculation was that we would need eight months of salary, uh, what one man would earn in, in eight months, we'd need that, to be able to provide just enough for everybody and they wouldn't have anything over. So what they're realizing is that, really, we can't do this, so send them away. So their calculations were fine as far as they went because there were more than 5,000 people here, and this was really impossible for them uh, to provide food for all these people. So... They miss one factor, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. They'll do the same thing later. Remember, after this miracle, Jesus will feed 5,000 people. Later on, read about it in Matthew 15 or Mark 8, they're confronted with 4,000 people. The Lord Jesus asks the same question. They make the same calculation. They come to the same conclusion. They say, it can't be done. And then the Lord Jesus provides the answer. So all their calculations, even the second time, were right, except they missed one thing. They forgot one thing. They forgot the Lord Jesus Christ. So they forgot the one. Now, remember, they're confronted with the situation. How do we feed this massive group of people? But they forgot the one who posed the question, is also the one who opens up his hands and fills the mouths of all creation. They forget that the Lord Jesus is the one who gives all animals their food in due season. Where do all the animals get their food? It's not just from foraging and killing other animals. It's actually from the Lord. And they forgot that this one who asks them the question, where will we get food for these people, is that one. They forget that he's the one who created the universe and also now continues to sustain the universe. And so this 5,000 people for lunch is really a small problem. Uh, They should have known. and They should have known better. Uh, We sympathize with them. We understand about small faith. We understand about faith disappearing as soon as problems walk in the door. We understand that experientially, but they should have known. And were we in this situation, we should have known as well. They should have known because they had witnessed so many wonderful things. This is about April of 29 AD. This is a miracle that marks the end of the Lord Jesus' great Galilean ministry. And these people have seen wonderful things. These disciples have witnessed miraculous things. They have witnessed the healing of the nobleman's son by a word. They have witnessed the the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. And she rose up and immediately was in good health and began to serve. They witnessed 
And they saw that. They witnessed all kinds of sick people and demon-possessed people being healed. They witnessed the cleansing of the leper. They witnessed the healing of the paralytic and the fact that the Lord Jesus said to the paralytic, who now could move, your sins are forgiven. So that's a claim to deity. That's saying, I'm God, because everybody knew only God can forgive sins. So not only does he heal a paralytic, but he forgives him of his sin thus claiming to be God. They'd witnessed these things with their own eyes. They'd seen it, and they'd heard it, and they were there. They should have known better. They should have known this isn't a problem. And then they also uh, witnessed the healing of the centurion's servant. They witnessed the raising of the widow's son, raising from the dead. They witnessed the raising of Jairus' daughter, From death to life, they witnessed Jesus raise someone from the dead. They should have realized then that the provision of food, even for 5,000 plus, is not a problem for him. Well, the sad thing is that faith is so often small. Their faith was small, and their faith was weak. And we don't throw stones at them because, well, we understand what that's like. And we understand what it was like when, not so long after this, when there are 4,000 people again, they forget. And now they not only forgot all those other miracles, but now they forget that he fed 5,000. They might have said, well, this is only 4,000. But no, they say, this is impossible. And faith then is very, very weak. We read in the Old Testament, we read in Numbers 11, how am I going to provide food for all these people, says Moses. We read the the spies who go into the land, they say, oh, these are massive people there. How can we possibly take the land? They forget the Lord. And we tend to forget the Lord. And when insurmountable problems come our way, that's all we see. We're just like horses, and we've got the blinders on, and that's all we see. We just see the problem that lies ahead of us, and it's massive to our eyes because everything else is blocked away. Whereas if we were to look up for a moment and see this in light of Him, everything changes. The whole perspective is different. Weak faith. The book of the Revelation seeks to remind us about God. God knows that we forget Christ. And Revelation wants to remind us about Christ. It tells us about the world in which we're going to live. It tells us, the whole book of the Revelation tells us, that the time period from the beginning to the end, from when Jesus returned to heaven and when he returns to earth, that the time period in which we live... It's going to be full of trouble. There's going to be persecution. There's going to be wickedness. There's going to be so many difficulties. And the devil will unleash all of his forces against us. And we will go from one trouble to another in this world in which we live in the, uh, the time between the comings of Christ. But then Revelation says, despite all of that and in the face of all of that, remember this. The Lord God omnipotent reigns. Revelation 19.6. So here's all the trouble, but look up. The Lord God omnipotent reigns. 
Here are all these times of testing and trying, but remember, the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Don't forget the Lord Jesus. That's what Revelation's telling us. That's the lesson we learn here. Don't be like these disciples. Don't be like you and I so often are. And don't forget the Lord. I don't know what you're facing. But don't look at it in isolation. Don't don't ease God out of the equation. See, we do that by just looking at the trouble. And, and, And we ease God away. We forget Christ and we just focus. Don't do that. That's when we really get into trouble. When you see the difficulty or the testing in isolation. The fact of the matter is, even if you forget Jesus, he's always there. Just because we forget him doesn't mean he's not involved. Doesn't mean he's not there to help. It doesn't mean he doesn't give us all the grace we stand in need of. It doesn't mean that when our faith is weak, he won't come along and strengthen our faith. He does. That's the wonderful thing. That's why he's such a glorious Savior. And so he'll help us to, to see things as they really are. And to remind us that we're never forsaken. And remind us that He's always with us. And remind us that He gives us the grace we need. Grace, we read in 2 Corinthians 12, that is sufficient for our testing and our trial. Well, that's the second thing, the, uh, the testing of God's people. Uh, we, the Lord Jesus tests us, and we tend to forget Him. But the glorious thing is that he's still there in all of his glorious goodness. So the testing of Christ and then uh, the forgetfulness of the forgetting of Christ. And then lastly, uh, the revelation of Christ. This miracle tells us about who Jesus is. Augustine said this. He said, when you read a, a miracle like this, he says, the Lord Jesus was the word of God. And all the acts of the word are themselves words for us. They're not as pictures, merely to look at and admire, but as letters which we must seek to read and understand. So we have to read this and understand what it tells us about the character of Jesus. So if you're a Christian, what is your Lord like? The Lord who who rules your life, who orchestrates all the details of your life. What's he like? Well, the first thing we see is that he's full of compassion. We see his compassion. The Lord Jesus was interrupted. He wanted to get some rest and he wanted his disciples to get some rest. And then we read in Mark 6 and verse 34, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And we find that again later in chapter 8 and verses 2 and 3. Chapter 8, verses 2 and 3. There again, there's a great crowd gathered. They had nothing to eat. He called his his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And the Lord Jesus has compassion. So these must have been wonderful people. No, they weren't wonderful people at all. And Jesus knew what they were like. These, uh, these people who followed him. In John 6, in verse 2, it says, A large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. 
They didn't follow him because they loved him. They followed him because they wanted to see him do signs. And these were the people who, after he did the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, he began to teach them about who he really was and that he was the bread of life. And they were offended by that. And John 6 says that many of them walked with him no more. That didn't surprise Jesus. He knew what they were like. He knew about their sin. But he had compassion on them. And so he looks at them now. He sees what they're going to be like then. He sees what's really in their heart as he speaks to them. And the Bible says he had compassion on them. The Lord Jesus is full of compassion. And we want to be like him. And we must look around us at at Christians. And we must look around us at non-Christians. And we mustn't look and say, well now, who's deserving of our compassion? We must have compassion. There are Christians who are going to sin against us. We have to have compassion on them. And there are details to be worked out and there's confession to be had and so on and so forth. I'm not talking about all those kinds of details. I'm just just saying, what kind of heart do you have? What kind of heart ought I to have to those who sin against me? It ought to be a heart of compassion if I'm a follower of Jesus. And I must long for the best for them. His compassion. And then his power. We see the power of Jesus Now, unbelievers, I don't know if you know this, but unbelievers write commentaries on the Bible. And unbelievers write commentaries on the Gospels. And when they come to a passage like this, and I could point you to those books, I won't because I don't want you to read them, but I could point you to books where they say this is what happened. This was an amazing thing that happened. Jesus had some food, and he began to share. And... um, Everyone else, well, it seemed as if they didn't have food, but they really did. You know, they had it in a bag. But they knew there were lots of people here, so they kept it to themselves. But then they saw Jesus, and they thought, oh my, he's so generous. Look at him. He's so kind. So they started to bring out their stuff, and they started to share it. And then other people, more hard-hearted, but but now they're, they're being moved by this, and And all of a sudden, everybody's got food because they all brought it out of the bags they were carrying. And isn't that wonderful? What a miracle. Of course, that's a lie. No, what happened was, they had five loaves, five little buns. Some of the young men in our church could probably eat those five buns all by themselves. And they had that, and they had two fish. And, And Jesus took that... And with that, he fed 5,000 plus however many women and children there were. That's what happened. That's what he can do. That's the power that he has. This was a miracle. And then they had 12 baskets left over. That's I mean, that's astounding. Now, that power 
is understandable when you realize who he is. When you realize that he's created a universe out of nothing. If you create a universe out of nothing, you can create a meal out of five buns and two fish. That's nothing for you. The Lord Jesus is omnipotent. He can do anything. Now that power is at work in you and for you. You're never alone. He is with you. He helps you. You can't rise above this thing, you say. Yes, you can, because the Lord Jesus helps you. You can't face that situation next week. You can't go to the doctor and deal with this issue that's arisen. You can't do these things. Yes, you can. Why? Because the Lord Jesus, well, he's got this kind of power, you see. And he will help you. And he's able to help you. And it's for that reason that Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do whatever God calls me to do. I can do, ever, I can do whatever the Lord Jesus says I need to do because he has all power and he'll strengthen me. So what do we learn about the Lord Jesus? What do we learn about our Lord Jesus? He's He's compassionate. Uh, He's powerful. And then he's sufficient. That's the last thing. He's sufficient. Uh, There are lessons to be, the biggest lesson to be learned from this this miracle, the Lord Jesus articulates in John chapter 6. So just turn to John chapter 6 for a moment, verse 26. John 6 and verses 26 And 27, and then verse 32. So John 6, verse 26. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Now go down to verse 32. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said, Sir, give us this bread. And then he says, I'm the bread. I'm the bread. Now, bread doesn't sound like anything exciting. Bread doesn't sound like a great meal. But in those days, you can't go to the store and you can't go and buy all kinds of food off the shelves. You live from day to day. And will I have bread today? And bread was what we call a staple. If you don't have bread, you'll starve. So bread is really important. It's not a luxury. It's not... It's not haagen ice cream. That's a luxury to die for. This, without this, you die. Really die. And Jesus says, well, I'm the bread of life. I'm the one that you need to live. Without me, you die. Without me, you go to hell. I'm that one item that is absolutely essential for you. I am the bread of life. And the Lord Jesus says then that if you, if you want life, spiritual life now, 
eternal life in the world to come, you must believe on him. He says, you must eat of me. What he means is you must believe. You must trust me. And when you do, you will live. Now, we know that there are those who struggle with what we call anorexia nervosa. We know what a difficult and troublesome uh, affliction that is, and we know people who, because of the struggles they're having, they, they turn away from food, and they don't eat, and they begin to waste away. And some of them eventually end up dying. We know what a dreadful thing that is. And so they turn away from that which they need to survive, and they end up sometimes not surviving. How sad, then, if the Lord Jesus is the bread of life, and you don't believe in him, and he's your only hope, and he's the only one who can give you life, spiritual life, and eternal life. And how sad, then, if you walk away from him and then you die in your sin. So you see, the Lord Jesus says you must believe. You must trust him. And you will live. He's the bread of life. And this bread of life is free. If you read Isaiah 55, God says, come and eat and drink. There's a feast in front of you. It's free. The Lord Jesus is that feast, you see. And he's free. And he provides all that we stand in need of. This food is plentiful. Why why are there 12 baskets left over? Well, because the Lord is saying to us, I am food, and there's more than you can possibly want or need. And you will eat your fill, and there will be more left over. That's how gracious and how glorious and how filling is the bread of life. That's Jesus. If you want to live, you come and you enjoy this feast, which is the Lord Jesus, and he will give you life. Well, have you fed on him? I'm talking about the sufficiency of Jesus to save you. Have you fed on him? Have you tasted the bread of life? Now, every week, the bread of life is put up to your lips. And you are encouraged to eat so that you might live. Have you eaten of him? Have you trusted the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation? I'm not talking about other people. I'm talking about you. Have you believed in the Lord Jesus? And if you haven't, you need to do it tonight. You have no guarantee of another day. You need to believe in the Lord Jesus tonight. If you have, well, oh my, you're blessed. You'll go through life and there'll be all kinds of troubles, all kinds of testing. But you're alive in Jesus and you have a heaven ahead of you. The Lord Jesus is full of compassion. He's full of power. He's all sufficient. And if he's your savior, how blessed you are. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we pray for anyone amongst us tonight who is not a believer, has never tasted the living bread, 
never believed in the Lord Jesus, we pray that you'll have dealings with them tonight and, and draw them to him. And Father, those of us who know the Lord Jesus, we are, we are his people. And he tests us and he tries us, but he loves us and he does so uh, so that we might grow in grace and in the knowledge of himself. Oh, we thank you for how blessed and privileged we are. We pray that you'll help us to have grand thoughts of the Lord Jesus, to think of him as he is revealed in the Holy Scriptures, to see something in the Word of God of his majesty and his glory and his splendor. And oh, we pray that you'll help us to have grand thoughts of him and walk uh, through this life through faith in him. So bless us, we pray. Bless your word to us. And uh, we pray that you'll help us then to glorify our Lord Jesus, for we pray in his name and for his sake.